Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. On DAB Digital Radio and 1089 and 1053 AM. Eddie Howe, an English coach with DM Balagay on Talk Sport. Eddie Howe never planned to be a coach. A promising centre-half who began with Bournemouth his career was blighted by injury and he was forced to retire 29. In January 2009, Howe, by then a youth coach, was asked to take over the first team. When he did, Bournemouth were in danger of going out of the Football League. They survived. He moved on to Burnley for a while, then returned for a second spell in charge of the club. More recently, he has led them into the Premier League via two promotions in three seasons, all achieved with an attractive brand of football. He often states that he wants people to pay to come and watch his teams. Bournemouth have survived in the Football League. A 2-1 win against Grimsby on the final day ensures they remain in England's fourth tier. You can almost taste it as the celebration starts. It's going to be Camorgan against Darren Randolph into the bottom right-hand corner. And he's that the goal that sets Bournemouth on course. There's the full-time whistle. Bournemouth, for the first time in their history, are a Barclays Premier League side. It's all about the boys. It's all about Eddie and the team. It's Glenn Murray in front of the Bournemouth fans. It's Chelsea nil, Bournemouth one. That is the full-time whistle at the Vitality Stadium. Bournemouth have beaten Manchester United. Eddie's done an amazing job at Bournemouth. They are such a fantastic football team to watch. They play great football. Cook with a chance to bring it towards the edge of the area. He lets fly from distance. Carries has spilt it. Ake! 4-3 to Bournemouth. What an extraordinary turnaround here at the Vitality Stadium. And the Cherries have surely won it. It is a big, big win for Bournemouth. This year, he's successfully navigating Bournemouth through the top second season syndrome after avoiding relegation with his Premier League rookies. House partner in Bournemouth's rise has been Jason Tyndall. Having previously played together in the Cherry Central Defence, Tyndall is a vital component in the backroom staff 
at the Vitality Stadium. Coaching is at the heart of Bournemouth's success. There is a desire to improve players rather than replace them. To how the key factors are to keep things fresh and ensure his methods are always relevant. This modern coach knows his way around a laptop as well as a training ground. How uses a lot of video for analysis, inspiration and introduction as every tool is used to help players settle in. For this programme, Eddie has given us unprecedented access to his and Bournemouth's matchday routine, from the video briefing he takes his players through to the training ground session right after the kickoff. We will delve into the unique world of this brave new English manager. I was asked to meet him at 3pm at a VIP box at the stadium the day before the game. That was the start of a 48 hours journey. I've met you before at Reading Stadium in the manager's room with uh, when Brian McDermott was there uh, and it made me realise what a strange place a manager's room is especially after a game because in there you talk the truth the masks is off, are off whatever happens in the game you talk like as if you were uh, dissecting a, uh, an animal this happened, that happened perhaps without the emotions that you see in, in the fans. Is that how you see it, a strange place? Yeah, it is, it is a very honest place, as you say. Um, honest in terms that you reflect on the game that you've just encountered. Um, you've gone against your opponents, and it's quite an honest reflection of what you've seen from both sides. So it's, it's quite a nice moment. I think a lot of uh, foreign managers don't really understand it, and it, it does seem quite a strange ritual for, for us, uh, British managers to do but it's um, sort of something you get used to you actually uh, look at yourselves talking to the media to see if you said send the right message because it's, it's about that isn't it uh, and depending on the message of course if you had to complain about the, refer the referees or whatever then the other manager would just uh, have a, a little dig it's that kind of place where uh, rules are completely different to, to the outside world yeah, it also depends on the relationship you have with the manager that you're speaking with. So um, at a lot of the time, you know them and you're catching up with them on a, on a personal level as well. But um, yeah, so I think that relationship you have also takes the conversations sometimes in a way uh, that you're comfortable with or not comfortable with, depending on the company. What's the manager's room here? Is it big? No, it's very small, as you probably can imagine. Um, smaller size stadium, so... Uh, the room reflects the stadium really it's a small tight room there's no hiding place so mm -hmm. um, you know you come face to face with your opponents and uh, do you choose the food and the drinks that are in there or uh, yeah you have a you have a uh, a conversation with people in terms of what you want but uh, i got to say the food is it's not bad it's okay so we are at the stadium in one of the boxes at the, at the stadium and uh, you see the perfect grass uh, in between stands in one side you see the countryside on the other side you see a building uh, this was not like this in 94 when you first came in what was it like? Um, yeah the old stadium was do you know what I loved it it was it was run down it was uh, not not a great place visually on the eye you wouldn't look at it and think well, this is a you know really nice surroundings everywhere was was dirty broken um, but I, I really loved it as a player. I loved playing here. Um, the opponents didn't like coming here, so you really got an advantage from the surroundings that they faced. And uh, I heard that Eddie Howard, the player, is available again. So are you going to call him up? <laughs> um, <laughs> I would probably have him around for his attitude. 
yeah, I mean, he was the player. I was 100% all effort. Um, I would say limited in terms of my physical attributes meant that I was, for a centre-half, I was small. I was 5'11". Um, and that was always a challenge for me. I'd have probably suited playing at a higher level than a lower level. Playing against the target man in the lower leagues was, was difficult for me. But, you know, I really survived on attitude and endeavour. Was that, that that comes naturally, or you uh, you build it because you are limited in, in in other in other parts, or is that, is that how it goes? To, to a degree, yeah. I think my limited talent, um, my limited, um, and I always felt that sort of I, I was fighting against the tide a little bit to make a career. I was I was having to work harder than everyone else to survive. So I think when when you realise that, then you know you have to work hard every single day, and then it becomes your ha- your habit. It, then it becomes your life. That you know, every day you have to come in and maximise the day um, and make the best of yourself to uh, to have a career in the sport you love. Is that enjoyable? Yeah, I loved it. I absolutely loved the challenge of going up against people and, and trying to become better than them, and trying to win a contract, win a place in the team. Uh, when you're fighting against your peers, I love that competitiveness of the sport, um, and I still do to this day. And you have to just com- be completely focused. There's nothing else at, at that point in your life. There is absolutely nothing else that matters. Absolutely right. Uh, I was absolutely focused on my playing career. From the minute I decided to try and be a professional footballer, which was quite late really, it was around the age of uh, 16, 17, was the first time really that I thought I'm going to really go for this um, because I didn't think I was going to be good enough. Um, Then I I put every effort uh, to, to the end of my career to make myself the best player I could. And you put it in the contract with the people around you, right? You're my friend, but remember, first of all, I'm a player. You're my girlfriend, but remember, I'm a player first. Is that how it goes? Yeah, my family very much knew sort of where my priori- priorities lay at that stage. I was uh, driven, and I think when you're driven to to achieve your goal, it doesn't mean that your your um, your family or your personal life go out the window. It just means that when you have to make a choice, you, you take the side of your career. So yeah, going out as an 18-year-old, 19-year-old, um, socialising was was different for me, and I was had no problem making those decisions. It was it was black and white for me, and even some of my teammates would take a different route. I would always take the route that I had to be professional. Who got you your first boots? First boots. Um, no, I, I always bought my own boots. I, I don't think I was given a pair in my playing career. That's I think that's a sign that I never really made it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there are some actually players at the top level that uh, they don't get the boots paid these days. Not everybody is uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, is there? Mm. Uh, And that's the kind of thing you have to deal with as a a manager, dealing with the ones that get the boots paid and the ones that don't. Yeah, I mean, I think that the real joy for me was actually having a boot boy, not, not necessarily having the boots paid for me. But I remember being, obviously, that was the time when I was a YTS coming through. I was cleaning the boots with Sean O'Driscoll, who was eventually would become manager that was my first taste of that side of it and I took that job very seriously so when you actually end up becoming a professional yourself and having that person that's cleaning your boots that was a real moment that um, I took a little bit of pleasure in Why can it not be done now? Well, It's, it's not done now here um, because the youth team train in a different location to the first team so we don't actually have that day to day contact which is a real shame Would you like that to stay to stay as a tradition. Yeah, there are some traditions I think in modern day football that are is sad that they're not they're not still here. That is one of them. Having that link with the first team as a youth team player 
being able to talk to a first team player, albeit about boots most of the time, is a real way in to seeing the life of a footballer, uh, seeing how how their mindset is, how they work, watching them closely is what I used to do and I got a lot from it. You are listening to Eddie Howe, an English coach, with me, Guillem Balaguer. In the next section, we talk to Eddie about his early influences in management. If you had a bad game, you got shouted at, you got, um, you got told how it was, and that sort of was a stereotype that you then expected. So you made a mistake, you expect a reaction, you expect some sort of uh, repercussions from that. And that was the way it was probably until I was working with Sean O'Driscoll. Um, so then he was the first coach that didn't necessarily um, shout and scream at you when you made a mistake. Looked at things totally differently. And um, that was a real eye-opener for me. That was the first time that uh, I thought to myself, it doesn't have to be this way. English coach with DM Balagay on Talk Sports. I'm here at the Vitality Stadium at the start of a two-day process. First, Eddie is telling me all about his vision, his plans, how he started out in management and where he wants to work towards. Later, Eddie will take us into the inner sanctum of his decisions by talking to me moments before the game. I hear you talk and I read about you and what I see is, as you mentioned yourself, a, a very driven person. You, you're the son of your mother, is that what it is? Yeah, very much so. I think um, I th took early learnings from her really without really knowing it she was um, a single parent with five kids so that in itself is a huge task for one person to take on having five kids of different ages so three year gap between all of us so that's quite a spectrum of ages that you have to deal with different problems and then also facing that with limited funds and finances so she had to hold down I think at the time two or three jobs while managing and juggling the kids and picking them up from school and All the things that go with it, that's an incredible workload on, on one person. So without knowing it, watching her from afar definitely um, built my character. Did you think that was normal, as in having a single mom and having to deal with a lot and having two, three jobs and all that? Do you, th do you think that was normal or did that set you apart straight away and you felt you were in a special place? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I felt... Um, A lot of the time I would want to go to her job. So she started a, a news agent's. The news agent's was her first job of the day, so that would be four o'clock in the morning. So that's an wow. incredibly early start. And a lot of the time, I'd say all the time, but we would come. So two of the kids would come because uh, obviously then she wouldn't have to get us up at, <laughs> later on to go to school. So we'd, we'd sort of have really early starts, but it became the norm. And then we'd help with the papers and do jobs around the news agent's. And suddenly you're into a working routine and you're building that you have to work to get paid um, and then we were going to school obviously so what age is that uh, that was that was young yeah I'd have been about seven or eight then so yeah a lot, I mean I get up now very early so that that's sort of something that I can draw a parallel to and say yeah I followed that on I was going to say so you still get up early are you a good sleeper yeah I don't have problem sleeping I never have and I think if you have a full day and you live your life 
100 miles an hour which in this job when you're a Premier League manager it sort of goes with the territory you're, you don't have a minute to really relax during the day at night I need my sleep <laughs> and you, you got to bed early uh, uh, yeah half ten I'd say on average so not 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 too early you know otherwise I'd never see my wife <laughs> <laughs> Um so you've got you've got uh, a childhood. It sounds like happy. Would you call it that? Uh, certainly stable, uh, normal. Is that how you describe it? Yeah, very happy. I didn't want for anything. Although we had no money, you know, things were really tight. No holidays. No massive presents. Um, our holiday w- was camping in a tent for a couple of weeks, which was the best time of the year. So no, it was a, a childhood full of everything that I could ever want uh, I felt very stable um, I had really nice grandparents which played a key part in my life as well I was very lucky to have them um, so yeah very good you, sp- you spent a lot of time with them with your grandparents yeah especially my granddad he was a really keen failed sportsman so he would the majority of the time we were cricket he was cricket uh, orientated I wouldn't really kick a ball with him it was all about having a straight bat and learning to bowl and to bat so cricket was a big part of my early life as well so um and he taught me a lot as well, you know, in terms of education. So I was very lucky to have him in my life. So it tends to happen when you are surrounded by people that appreciate football as as a career or, or something that's good to do, that you end up trying it at least to being a footballer. Was that where uh, being a sportsman's come from, from 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 your granddad? Yeah, I think so. I think my um, my granddad definitely was had the same sort of character as I have now. He was. He had a good work ethic. He had he loved sport, loved all different kinds of sport. He was mainly cricket. But um, when I was young, I was playing snooker. As I could barely see over the table, I was playing snooker, and I was pretty good at that. So anything with a ball, really, I I excelled in at that age. So I saw myself as an all rounder. Now I didn't know where or if that would ever be enough to take me into a career in sport. I didn't really think, as I said earlier, it would uh, enable me to to do that. But thankfully when I moved south to Bournemouth that's where the football sort of took over um, upon moving here I was pushed into teams and I played and uh, you know, I became better than my peers for my age I remember Mendieta told me one day that he went to a shop with his dad and, uh, and his dad said alright these are the running shoes because he was a great runner these are the football shoes which ones do you want and that was the moment where he had to choose his career perhaps at 13, 14 mm. was there a moment a day for you? there was actually yeah um where I had to choose between definitely football and cricket, I got given the the fixture list for I got called up by Dorset, the county. Uh, so they said to me, right, we want you to play as part of our. I'm not sure what age it would have been. I'm having a guess here around under 13s or 14s, and we want you to fulfil these fixtures. These are the fixtures that uh, we're going to produce. And I looked down the list, and it was an incredible amount of cricket in the year. And I think the they said tick the ones you're available for. So I looked at it and I thought, well, I can't have anything in the football season. So that cuts off that, and that left about three months. And I decided just to tick the ones out of football season. So that was basically me saying, no, football was my priority, and that's the way I want to go. I think, ultimately, I could have been a better cricketer than I was football football player, because they didn't have the physical limitations on me, perhaps, with my size. But ultimately, my love for football was stronger than it was for cricket. It sounds like when you were younger, your world was small, as it tends to be anyway. When was the last, the first time that you actually went abroad and saw that the world is huge? Um, 
God, that is a good question. I don't know off the top of my head. Um, well, we didn't have any holidays abroad, so it, it definitely maybe with the team, with one of the teams, or um, did a couple of school trips, but that would have been to France for the day. Nothing, you know, we didn't have for the day. It's a yeah, long way. But yeah, we, we were, <laughs> I remember going to France for a day when I was yeah, yeah. twelve. This is France, right? Bye. That was it. It was literally because <laughs> we were from Bournemouth. I think it was a ferry from somewhere to Cherbourg and back in a day so <laughs> very limited I, I really can't remember my first experiences abroad but it would have been late in my life due to the fact that we, as I said we never we never went anywhere so yeah may, maybe you know I, I haven't um, at that stage in my childhood I hadn't seen the world both Messi and Ronaldo talking about the, the elite say that uh, a defeat when they were kids was like a little death they, they died inside it was impossible to come out uh, happy for days and in some cases wouldn't even talk to the people around them is that how you dealt with defeat yeah very much so when I was a player I felt I felt defeat very very um, very hard I, I really took the burden of defeat um, and it didn't matter that I was a new player into the team when I was 18 19 it would, it would be yeah, tragic tragedy in my life really for that moment if I made a mistake that cost us a goal being a defender I would Yeah, I didn't want to be seen. I didn't want to talk to anybody. It would be the, very much the same feeling. I felt embarrassed. Um, I felt like I let the team down. So, um, as I became, when I became captain at a young age, I then took those responsibilities on, and then it weighs even heavier. And now, as a manager, <laughs> it's even worse. You know that that feeling of defeat. Then you feel like you're responsible for everyone's emotions in the town. So, it's a responsibility I take very seriously. So you are, you are in the business now of. Um changing the mind frame of, of people. I don't know if there was anybody there that, that could get you out of that mind state or you just have to wait for the moment to pass. Yeah, no, the only person that could get myself out of that would have been me, uh, myself, as in uh, the next day in training, whenever we trained again, training well and then building my confidence levels back. Uh, but the, really the only thing that gets that defeat away is the next victory, is the next win. And even then you never forget The, the defeat um, but you're constantly then working and this is what I felt I was constantly working and training to avoid that feeling to avoid the, the feeling of defeat then inspired me to, to work as hard as I did and I'm still the same as I say although it's management now the, the feelings are exactly the same See if I'm right or wrong with this I feel that in, in England there's a lot of emphasis on, on fear and on error not as part of a learning process but as something that that hits you really hard are you part of that culture is that what you were feeling at the time that is the fear of what people would think the fear of not being able to overcome yeah no I agree I, I think you've hit the nail on the head when in English football there was definitely and this was drilled into me as a sort of 13 14 year old in my first uh, dealings with the professional club which was Bournemouth that if you had a bad game you got shouted at you got um, you got told how it was And that sort of was a stereotype that you then expected. So you made a mistake, you expect a reaction. You expect some sort of uh, repercussions from that. And that was the way it was probably until I was working with Sean O'Driscoll. Um, so then he was the first coach that didn't necessarily um, shout and scream at you when you made a mistake. Looked at things totally differently. And um, that was a real eye-opener eye for me. That was the first time that uh, I thought to myself, it doesn't have to be this way. And football was very much run by fear, I, I think, in, the, in my early dealings with it. It was very much, you don't step out of line or you won't have a career, you won't do this, you won't ask why. 
it was ne- never never ask why just accept what's being said to you and then and then move on to the next day you say that used to be in the past I see with the England national team and I see with young players in England still that they cannot come out of, of that that they are in fear of what people will think of not being able to make it of not realising their dreams would you agree with that still? yeah I still yeah it's difficult because I'm obviously focused on here and what we do and what we deliver to the players here and you then tend to forget what's happening elsewhere so you, you live it so much that um, yeah I can only deal with what my staff and myself do but yeah I'm sure up and down the country there's still that element of fear um, surrounding the players and I think that is a, a potential handicap for our young young players coming through um, I do think it's different in other countries I do think there's different cultures and a different way of, of treating young players Cook with a chance to bring it towards the edge of the area he lets fly from distance Carries has spilt it Ake 4-3 the Bournemouth what an extraordinary turnaround here at the Vitality Stadium and the Cherries have surely won it you are listening to Eddie Howe an English coach with me Guillem Balaguer coach with Guillaume Balagay on Talk Sports. As a player in the 1990s, Howe joined teammates on the streets of Bournemouth with buckets collecting cash to keep the club alive. Now Bournemouth is owned by Russian businessman Maxim Demin and American investors Matt Hulsiser and Jay Coppoletta, but the club retains a strong English identity. Bournemouth are providing the platform for midfield Jack Wilshire to reboot his career with the regular starting place he couldn't hold down at Arsenal. But there are a whole host of homegrown players that are contributing to the success of Bournemouth. Sends the ball right for Adam Smith, who scored a wonderful goal. He's pushing in field Smith up to the edge of the area. Daniel's left-hand side, across the face of goal! It's there! Junior Stanislas! Unbelievable! It's 3-3! Afobi, Cook! 3-3! Steve Cook turning the ball and spinning it into the bottom left-hand corner of the net. Bournemouth 1, West Ham 0. Harry Artis' first goal in the Premier League. Into the back of the net by Dan Gosling. In off the post and Bournemouth have their lead doubled by Charlie Daniels. So somebody told you uh, or explained to you how things work instead of punishing you for making a mistake and that was the eye-opener you were talking about because they, they told you this is why why things happen. You just got us all at the time, Sean, did to, to question to question him really, to question his training. Why is he putting these training sessions on? Why, uh, why when the goalkeeper gets the ball should we all run up the pitch and chase it in a corner? Um, the first time that I've ever had someone just question the stereotypes that I've always believed to be right and I thought he was a real innovator he was the first person that sort of went against the grain he, he went against the grain on everything so he just wanted to do things differently and that, that was refreshing to see So imagine you're describing the way you were thinking as a player and then you have to say I cannot continue my, my body doesn't let me do so so it's darkness isn't it what's, what's after? It was very dark for me because, as I said, I, I didn't pre-plan the end of my career. I, even when I knew my career would be shortened by injury, I didn't, um, 
I didn't look ahead and think, right, I'm going to train to do something else because I was still in that deluded belief that I could continue, I could become the player I was again. Uh, and even if I don't get to those levels, I need to focus everything on my day-to-day well-being to elongate my career. So I didn't probably plan for the end until it came. And then I was met, left in, yeah, in the darkness, as you say, because I didn't know where to go next. It was your identity. It was the person you, mm. you, you were. Uh, so at that point, uh, when you remember the exact day, the first day that you didn't have to go to training? Yeah, well, I, yeah, I remember the day we played. Um, my last game was crew, crew away. No one else will remember this because no one was there. <laughs> it wasn't a game that's lived in the memory. It was a game that we, we lost 2-0. Um, and I was dreadful dreadful and I knew the end was coming and I played that game and I said to Kevin Bond and their manager I said I can't play again I said I can't do that to the team can't do that to myself and I knew that was my last game it was just it just hit me that my performance was that bad that I had to call an end to it so I really called time on my on my career and then it's it's, it's funny Kevin um, Kevin said to me I think it was a couple of days later got a game that we haven't got covered by a scout would you go and it was it was a Sunday And I had a decision to make there and then, and I didn't realise quite how pivotal that decision would be. I could either say yes and scout the game, go and watch our future opponents, or say no and spend the Sunday with my family. So when he asked me, I said yes. I had a little decision to make, and I thought about it, and I said yes, I'll go, no problem. So I went to the game, scouted the, the team that we were going to play, gave a good, hopefully a good report to Kevin, and um, we won the game. And I think that was the decision for him then. He saw that I was prepared to go, you know, with no future of a job on my own back. And I think from that point he said, right, I want you as part of my coaching team. So I didn't really have long, well, you know, a few hours without thinking of what I was going to do next. And then I had a, an offer of a job. Come with me to this parallel world where you actually said no. Where, where, would, where would you be now? What, who, what would you be doing? I'd probably... I had a lot of thoughts going through my head at that time. What, what am I going to do next? I probably would have got into coaching at some aspect, but probably with kids. You know, I probably would have gone down the youth development role or the centre of excellence role, whether that would have been here or another club. But I think I would have probably gone away and looked at my career from a different viewpoint and thought, right, I'll do my badges, but probably away from Bournemouth. But that decision to go sort of kept my tie with Bournemouth alive, really, and uh, enabled me to work with the first team eventually. That tell, tells you that you are a teacher uh, above anything else, an educationalist or however you want to call it, mm. which links a little bit with the kind of methodology that is successful, uh, say in Spain or in Germany, where coaches are, first of all, teachers that share knowledge and want to give knowledge. Is that how you do, would describe as a coach? Yeah, I, I consider <coughs> myself a teacher. I didn't initially. I just did what came naturally to me without analysing it too much. But I think in time... I realised that I w really wanted to coach more than manage. I wanted to improve players more than care about my profile or what I, how I look to the media. That had no interest to me whatsoever. It was all about the actual training. So that's where I get my, my buzz, where I, where I enjoy myself the most is out on the training pitch. Uh, I didn't sort of know that's where I would end up initially. It took time to develop that, that way of thinking. But once I did, then I was I was hooked like I was in my playing career and became very 
I suppose you could say, obsessive about it. You were married at the time that you got the Bournemouth uh, job, or...? Uh, yes, I think I was. Difficult to remember now. I will cut this bit. <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> 2008, I got married. I don't know when I became a manager. I think it was around the same time. Right. Uh, but I was going to ask you about when Don't you know. got the call. <laughs> so you got the call to be the manager of uh, of, of Bournemouth, yeah. and uh, you were with your partner at the time. Oh, it was a New Year's Eve party. It was New Year's Eve, obviously. Um, I was at Richard Hughes, former Portsmouth player, Scottish international. I was at his house. It wasn't the kind of New Year's Eve party you'd associate with normal footballers. I think we were playing board games. And... Uh, with the wives and girlfriends, a, ni- a nice social event, nothing crazy. I remember getting a phone call and going into a separate room so I could actually hear the conversation. And um, Is this close to midnight? Yeah, it was close to midnight, yeah. <laughs> what were people doing before midnight, just ringing well, you? Obviously, Bournemouth were without a manager at the time and in a state of real alarm, really, because... That the situation was great for the club so someone was obviously working late to the night <laughs> to try and make sure the future of the club was okay and yeah I got the call offering me the job it was quite bizarre really and uh, the embargo that uh, took place uh, soon after allowed you to develop players and you say that that's that's your essence really is there one particular player you think like I did with him so much uh, he helped obviously with his effort but there was one that you prove yourself that you could be a good one at uh, developing players? Um, yeah, it's a good question. I think uh, it's very difficult to pick one because ultimately I've ended up coaching a lot of players um, during my time as manager. I suppose I'll pick one from the early days because that's at that time that those are the players that I was working with. So I'll go with Brett Pittman, who when we took over, he wasn't in the team. But I'd known Brett a long time. I'd worked with him when I was um, first team coach under Kevin Bond and I played with him as well. So I sort of had a history with him. I knew probably more about him than any other player that I was about to to manage. And I believed in him, so I put him straight in the team. And he sort of, I think, knew then that, okay, this guy, he likes me. And I think he was pivotal, really, because every team needs a goal scorer. And if you don't have that goal scorer in your team, then you're not going to you're not going to get very far we built a really good relationship yeah I did a lot of work with Brett a lot of work with him he started out at number 9 with Steve Fletcher he ended up playing as a number 10 for me in the championship and um, doing very very well for us so you, you put hours in for him uh, gave him little clips was YouTube at the time uh, available or no but we we had the means to to do what we wanted with him so yeah I spent a lot of time with Brett I, someone that's fascinated me because one of the best finishers I've ever worked with to this day mm-hmm. an incredible appetite for scoring goals didn't care if you missed um, but a player that we had to develop in a sense that as I say started out as an out and out number nine on the shoulder but not the quickest um, and then we felt as he went up the levels well he's not going to survive as a nine potentially um, the higher he goes so we're going to have to drop him deeper and then that meant then changing his game to enable him to play in that position and the end result was that without him we wouldn't have been in the Premier League so it's an incredible journey for him and for us and the day he says thank you that that proper thank you that he gives you 
once in a while, I guess. Uh, is that the biggest, one of the biggest rewards? Well, I think, yeah, I don't think there's ever a time when a player says thank you. Um, no? No, not, not, not really, <laughs> because they're still in their careers, they're still in their moments, so they don't see it as a, a sort of a goodbye moment. And even when Brett left for Ipswich, I don't think there was a moment where, you know, for me, the biggest thank you was, would have been for me to him rather than the other way around, because I think without him, I don't think I'd be sat in this position now. So that's how I see it. Um, but the, the biggest satisfaction I get is from seeing them do well on the pitch whether it be for us or, or now for Ipswich it's great to see Brett's career going in the right direction and that makes all his efforts and our efforts worthwhile Pittman runs away from it and Mark Pugh plays it square to Pittman referee's in the way Pittman pulls the trigger and Pittman has a hat-trick what a day for Pittman! He'd already brought up his 100 Jerry's goals and now he has a match ball to mark the day as well. Eddie Howe, an English coach on Talk Sports. Eddie Howe has led us into his world the day of a game. This game is actually at home against Leicester. Eight of the starting 11 will be English, which is quite normal for Bournemouth. On the paucity of homegrown talent is a concern domestically. The cherries are a shining light, and this is thanks to Eddie and his belief in his ideals. Go back to the first day where you are the manager, you come out as a manager. Did you have a suit or did you have a track, track, track Game, suit? you mean? Yeah. No, very much a track suit. I made that decision early that... I couldn't be someone that I'm not. I couldn't step out in a suit. I, I didn't feel a suit manager. I felt a tracksuit manager. I felt that bond or wanted that bond and closeness to my players and I felt tracksuit was the best way to, to do that. Okay, you walk into the pitch and you know you just stand up there looking the, to the warm-up. You're not seeing anything, of course, <laughs> or anything new perhaps. You're, not, you're just uh, in awe of the moment, I imagine. Is that how, how you felt? Yeah, I mean, my first game was as caretaker um, against Darlington and it was a bizarre feeling. I remember before the game, stepping out, standing by the dugout and just thinking, what am I doing here? You know, how did I end up in this position? Uh, so soon, really, in my coaching career, where I, I didn't feel that I was ready for it, really. Um, did you share that with anybody or did you just have to look Only on? with Jason next to me saying, what, what are we doing here? <laughs> but... And what did he answer? Um... He'd been a manager, so although he was very young with me, um, he had been a manager. He had been number two under Jimmy Quinn, so he had a little bit more experience than me at the time. So I think for him it was easier. I think it was for me thrust into the manager's job where you get the, the cameras up to your face taking pictures of you and you're standing there. Yes, it was a, a weird moment, very proud moment because to manage this football club for me was something I never imagined as a kid. So I loved every second of it, although... I didn't feel prepared to take the job at that time, so I was really thrust into it. So you have to put the mask straight on. Yeah. And uh, how often are you taking that mask in the in the manager's room, maybe? Well, I, I would say on the training ground, I felt natural. It, well, I would say it felt natural. It felt natural to coach the players. It felt natural to get my point across. I didn't feel an issue when I was coaching. The only problem I felt was probably in in the in the spotlight. So in the, in the, in front of the crowd, in front of the media. I didn't consider myself a manager at that time. So, yeah, being thrust into those positions at the start was quite awkward. Who's going to be the first one to say that actually you don't see the game properly at there anyway? 
that's not an angle to see football normally, but you still have to be there, I suppose, for that bond that you want to develop with players. Am I, am I right? Yeah, you're absolutely spot on. I and mean, I say this quite a lot. It's very, very difficult because people want the crowds, everyone connected with the club, want to see you by your team. You want to be close to your team. And you don't want... One of the things I, I always felt was I didn't want to see my manager sat down and being removed from the game. I stand and watch the game by the touchline because I want my players to know that I'm there with them. I don't know if that makes a difference to them, but that's how I would feel I want my manager to be. So that's why I do what I do. But you're right, you can't see the game from a tactical perspective. You miss things um, that you spot later when you watch the game back from a better level. But I think it's part, again, of English tradition, and I think it's something that at this moment in time has to be done. This is you saying that after 300 and odd games at Bournemouth, mm-hmm. but that first day and that first week and that first month, could you see anything at all? Though just 22 guys moving very fast. Yeah, I couldn't see a lot. And I, th- then you go into it's half time and you think, well, what am I going to say at half time? <laughs> because I don't actually know what to say. And what am I going to say at the end of the game? Because then you're just going on the result and the emotion of the, of the, the win, loss, or the draw. So initially, that took a lot of my uh, time, you know, and a lot of my nerves would have been half time, end of the game. Uh, difficult to know what you've just seen. Mm-hmm. I guess that's where Jason came on good for you because he had had experience before. Yeah, Jason was was a big help. As I say, I think anyone who's managed themselves make a very good number two because you can relate to the manager, you can understand his feelings, you can step in and, and help him in certain situations because you've been there yourself. And I think uh, anyone who's not managed to then try and understand how a manager feels is incredibly difficult. So I ask you about the food in the manager's room because that's one of the 100,000 decisions that you have to take a day and you make sure that you take better decisions than wrong decisions. That's life of a manager, isn't it? Uh, I remember Michael Aldrup saying this to me for the first time. It's like even the paint, the color of the world. Somebody asked me today, does it have to be white or blue? I said, I don't care, <laughs> just whatever. Is that what you have to go through every day? Yeah, you do very much so. You have to make, as you said in the question so many decisions during the day and you just hope that you get most of them right so from the minute you step into the office you have decisions to make on obviously training personal relationships with players food it goes on and on the medical team the sports science team you're responsible for everything that goes on and you need to make sure that at the end of it all the players have come in and go home better players than when they arrived because ultimately that's that's the aim, is to make the best team that you can. So you can't get lost in that process, which is sometimes difficult. And I read you say that you even cut the, the clips for the players. I don't know, you're still doing that? Yeah, I'm still doing it myself because I only trust my eyes to, to make those calls. You're going to have to develop coaches that can help you with that. Is that something you, you try to do? Yeah, but then, yeah, no, I've got no problems with It's not a criticism of them. My analysts, my coaches, not a criticism of them at all. It's just a case of. I know exactly what's, what I want, what I see. And if I'm going to then show the players those those things, then it needs to be my my work going to them. I think it's very difficult to present other people's opinions on the game. So I've got no problem doing it. It's, um, it's what I've always done, and I think it's a really important part of the job. I've, I've got the impression that a lot of young uh, reporters, young journalists, analysts, look at you and uh, portray you in the 
and the best life possible because you're actually showing a couple of things that people doubted. One, that an English team doesn't have to play just one route one. Two, that English players are not bad players. They're just badly educated or badly coached. Uh, that came naturally, but uh, it's two things that you're doing from day one, isn't it? Yeah, in terms of the style of football, that definitely evolved after the first season. The first season was all about survival and it really hurt me to, um, at the time, say play quite direct football, but we did. We had to. We had no choice with the players that we had. I would I would get my friends to the game. I'd kind of say, come and see this game. Come and, come and watch us. Tell us what you think. And I was probably deluded at the time. I was like, we play good football. You know, what, what do you think? And they're like, hmm. <laughs> yeah, you get it forward quite quickly um, into the big target man, Steve Fletcher. But yeah, yeah, but you're missing things. So I was, <laughs> I was deluded from a from an early perspective where I was desperate to play good football, but knew that I had to stay and work and prove myself as a manager. And, and with the dire state the team was in, uh, trying to avoid relegation from League Two, we, we had Steve Fletcher in the team, um, one of my first signings, and probably arguably one of my best signings. He ultimately kept us up with the win, the, the goal against Grimsby, but he dictated our style of play to a degree. But since that season, yeah, we've evolved and subtly evolved season upon season to where our now our style of play is is everything to me, with, along with the results. You know, obviously you need them still, but we have to do it in a certain way. What is good football? Well, good football for me is in part um, making sure your players develop, and I know that that's not directly linked to the style, but how are your players going to develop every day? So, for me, the more touches you can give them with the ball the more you can flood them with technical decisions, football-based decisions, they're going to become better. To do that, you need to train a certain way. You need to get them the ball as much as you can in tight situations. To do that then, to get the benefit from your training, you need to do the same in the game. So um, being expansive with the ball, being brave with the ball, not making 50-50 calls, as in um, playing balls up to the, that are based on percentages, working the ball up with your team from, from defence to attack. How many times you use the word brave? Yeah, there's something, especially when you take over a team. So in my first spell at Bournemouth, that would have been a word I used a lot. And when I went to Burnley, that would have been a word I used a lot. And then returning to Bournemouth at the start of when you're working with players and they're getting to know you, um, there is a period where you keep having to re-emphasise the basics. And I think now my players know I don't have to repeat it so so often. This uh, foreign coaches I Big two, which are completely in love with the English player. Uh, the attitude, the commitment, uh, the learning. If you ask them to just do something, they will do it for you. Uh, but they, they feel that they lack that understanding of the game that uh, foreign players or some foreign players have because they haven't been coached properly. Uh, but you still insist on the idea of getting British first. Is that a conscious idea or is that a financial idea? Yes, yeah, it's... it's um It's definitely a conscious idea, but more from the sense of where we are as a football club rather than a a, uh, a favourite way of, of going in terms of our recruitment. So I, I respect foreign players immensely, whichever country they're from, if they're good enough, I would have no problem recruiting anybody. Um, but at the moment, I think with the size of club, the size of our scouting team, the size of uh, the resources we have to make the new players bed into the football club I think we're better going with, with people that we have more more knowledge on uh, more information on and um, 
a better way of integrating into into the team. We have taken steps into the foreign market, and it's um, I think it's something that we're improving in. Um, as you say, I think there's pros and cons. There's always two sides to it. As you say, the the British players a great mentality, great work ethic. Not everybody, but usually, um, and a quicker way, obviously, of integrating them to the team with the fact that they can speak the language and that they they know what type of football that we're going to play. Um, we've had limited success with the foreign market. But I think it's a way that we will go more in the future. And here we go. What an atmosphere here at Dean Court. The Barclays Premier League season for Bournemouth and Villa about to get underway. You know, the Bournemouth boss, Eddie Howe, had some good news this summer with his favourite band, Norwegian 80s pop gods, Aha, announcing they're reforming. Well, Howe is saying to the rest of the Premier League managers, take on me. On DAB Digital Radio and 1089 and 1053 AM. Eddie Howe, an English coach, with DM Balagay on Talk Sport. Howe is one of only three English managers in the Premier League. With a turbocharged ascent through the English pyramid, Eddie has steered Bournemouth into the Premier League while remaining faithful to his brand of attacking football. For this programme, Eddie has given exclusive access to his Premier League team. I'll take you behind the scenes for a private view at his preparations ahead of a match. We go onto the training pitch with Eddie and his players and I'll bring you the exclusive soundscape of a Premier League ground moments before kickoff. This is Eddie Howe, an English coach, with me, Guillem Balaga. Bournemouth have survived in the Football League. A 2-1 win against Grimsby on the final day ensures they remain in England's fourth tier. Hugh with a little set. Pippen with a shot. Pippen gets the goal. The punters on the brink of promotion. There's the full-time whistle. Bournemouth, for the first time in their history, are a Premier League side. Let's fly from distance. Carries has built it. A lot of uh, British managers tend to insist that uh, they learn a lot by coming out of their comfort zone and going abroad. Some perhaps show off without having been abroad properly, but they say, I was abroad as part of uh, giving them credit. You didn't need to do that or you didn't do that, but do you feel that's something that, that you lack in that you like to do at some point? Yeah, I've never, not really given it too much thought in my managerial career to date. Um, I have gone abroad and, and watched several teams train I think that's an important part of my development to broaden my horizons um, in other in other countries um, I am fascinated by the game in certain countries I think that's that's definitely part of my learning is to is to uh, take in different cultures and different ways of doing things in terms of actually working abroad I think at the moment I'm working in the best league in the world in my opinion so I don't think there's a great desire to go anywhere else yet Have you been in the manager's room with uh, Jose Mourinho or Pep Guardiola yet? Yes, yes, with both. How did it go? Um, yeah, fascinating, fascinating because I respect the two the two guys you've mentioned immensely in terms of what they've achieved and and how they've gone about doing it in in different ways. Um, but I really enjoyed meeting them both, and I think it's, it's difficult because we've I've 
you know, um, we beat Chelsea last year against against Jose. That was a, a difficult time for for him at that moment, but uh, he was very gracious in defeat. And um, Pep, obviously, they, they beat us comfortably, but he was very very good afterwards and very complimentary about the team that we um, that we were. So, got a lot of respect for both men. In fact, uh, the coaching staff Manchester City said that out of all the teams, this is I asked this before the Leicester game, so that bef- all the all the teams that uh, they faced. The one that they feel that is doing things differently is yours. Do you know what they meant? Um, no, I don't actually. <laughs> because on the day against Manchester City, I was really disappointed with our performance. Um, we tried to set up a certain way, and you you learn, don't you? You learn it. It didn't quite work, but they were they were very good on the day. Um, so I I'm, take the compliment, but um, yeah, we weren't very good. Was that something that Pep mentioned to you then after the game? No, no. He was just very, very nice, and he was complimentary about the team um, and, the, and the way that we play, which coming from him meant a great deal. Um, but you could tell that he he knew about us as a football club. Which, when you're in his position and you're managing Manchester City, you don't always know how much preparation they're going to do um, and how much they're going to know about us. So the fact that he knew um, certain things, I thought, was a real credit to him. And uh, if you had to pick something that you have to learn from his journey, what would it be? Would it be a tactical thing? or um, <clears throat> No, I don't think it would be a tactical thing. I think the things that you, you learn the most are not not on the pitch. Although well, every time we play a big a big team, we try and review the game and take something they do to to look at and think, could we do this with our players? I think the biggest thing is, is always off the pitch, is always um, how the managers conduct themselves how they face moments where you're questioning when you're questioning them and see how they respond so for him it would be I'm fascinated by the amount of times that his playing style is is questioned uh, when you consider how successful he's been and what he's won and where he's been to do it different countries he's now in another different country so he's proved himself again in a, in a totally different environment still being questioned and you know that baffles me but you know, I suppose that's the game. People have their own opinions. What are they? Why are they questioning it? Not not so much the defeats or the or, or, or the bad performances. A bad performance becomes a, a question about his philosophy. Why is that happening? Well, I don't understand it, and I don't understand the um, the overreaction to one result that's become the norm really in in football. It was never the case um, when I was playing. There, there was obviously a disappointment when you when you got beaten but the manager's job wasn't questioned on the back of it um, but that sort of crept into the English game more and more and and as you say then it's one bad game and you know, I've had it myself philosophies are questioned the way of playing is questioned and the reality is the, what's the alternative so you want me to play a different way than uh, the way we train the players and we have trained the players for four years in my situation does that just go out the window um, and everything that you've achieved to this point does that just get forgotten it's a way of making your your philosophy better is always the question that, yes that can be done you can make it better you can make the, the players do it more efficiently but changing it for me should be um, something you don't consider I've got the impression that Tony Bully's style is questioned less than your style being different progressive different in a world where that doesn't change or doesn't want to change that much I think different's the key word yeah I think anything that's seen to be uh, slightly unusual will get questioned more than the norm because that's how it's always been done but what you'll see is with people like Pep Guardiola they're, they're innovators they're the first ones to do things that then become normal 
but it takes a long time in football for that to be considered the way that everyone should do it. Do you feel that uh, talking about games and moments uh, that take you to a different level, the Liverpool game has changed the narrative regarding you and the club? Um, that's a difficult one because I don't think we played. I don't think we played well at all in the game. So, although everyone will be understandably excited by the result in terms of the Bournemouth town and the Bournemouth supporters, the actual performance was was disappointing. So, I find it very difficult. To to be excited about the game when I know the team didn't play it to its potential I'm much more excited about other games when we've played well and maybe even sometimes lost the game uh, so I can see the direction the team's going so it's always about performances for me rather than the, the result uh, and you also have to go against the tide you, if everybody's ecstatic you have to calm them down if they uh, criticise you have to say are we doing it well yeah. it's the mask again isn't it Yeah, and, it, and it's getting people to buy into what you're saying and believe what you're saying is true because uh, the result is everything and people won't believe you when you say oh, the team played well today and we lost they will look at you and think and that's where you lose credibility with people and that's where you need good people behind you and uh, behind you at the club where they, they see the long term vision they see what you're trying to achieve with the team How are we doing? Okay Yeah Can we get to 10 minutes? 10 yes. minutes on. One of the things that uh, many people criticise within the game sometimes, and especially foreign coaches, is that when there's an international break, uh, managers go away. What they realise now that they're here is that it's absolutely essential to rest because the stress that you're going through makes you really, really tired. How, how do you deal with all that? How do you deal with tiredness? Yeah, is it, um, it is a problem because you're emotionally you're drained. Um, the games have a big, a big effect. Although I don't kn actually know the the toll it takes, as in from a, a measurement perspective, I've never been hooked up to anything that would tell me how a game affects my stress levels and heartbeat and all those things. I can tell you on a Saturday night, Sunday night when we've played, I'm I'm exhausted, and you can just feel it. So yeah, the games, the the day to day workings of the club, the decisions you make, the press conferences, etc. They they um, they can drain you and it's very important that you do find a way even during the day to, to relax I'm not very good at it myself it's something that uh, <laughs> as I get older for sure I'm going to have to be better at I get my um, my stress relief from walking the dog running with him sometimes um, and during an international break yeah sometimes to get a couple of days away I do find it difficult to, to leave the club to, um, to switch off and what, if you don't switch off you don't realise where you are I guess it's like you assume that this is your position forever when in fact you should be enjoying it uh, is there times where, you, where it's difficult to enjoy yeah I do I do yeah I totally I get that emotion I, I struggle sometimes even during a good result a good moment of form I'm always thinking about the next game and the next the next challenge that you don't get a chance to sit back and actually think that was good that was good fun it's a job that I, I must love doing it I must do to, to give everything that I do to it but the, the moments of enjoyment are quite rare. And you go home and you have to be happy and you have to be attentive and you have to be energetic and that's almost like another mask sometimes. Are you in character most of the time? Yeah, I mean, I'm not very good at the mask at home. The mask slips off occasionally. Where <laughs> <laughs> They help you, do they? They help you to take it off. When, when you have two kids, I mean, how can you not? How can you not come home with a smile on your face when you met with a five-year-old and a two-year-old and a dog? 
you know and of course my wife who you know they don't really care about your troubles during the day and, and that's a nice thing it's a, a really nice escape for me so you see yourself where in say 10 years time well, I'll be 49 I really don't know the answer to that question I have no idea where I'll be in 10 years time I'd like to think I'd still be in football in some way but I don't I don't really um, count any chickens in, in a sense in management I've seen how volatile it is I've seen how short term the the job can change I can see how reactions can change very quickly so I don't think I must be in this job or that job I have no designs to look elsewhere another job I'm very happy here um, and I've got a massive challenge ahead of me short term You are listening to Eddie Howe an English coach with me Guillem Balaguer in the next section Eddie takes us onto the training pitch OK, normal play yes, press it It's match day. It's Bournemouth v Leicester. Called Tuesday night game under the floodlights. We're a few hours away from kickoff. Eddie Howe has given us exclusive access to his training pitch, the team's video briefing room, and some of the private offices in the stadium. This is Eddie Howe, an English coach. I'm here in the video room. It's the morning of the Leicester City game. Uh, the game will be played this evening at 7.45. Uh, it's just about 11 o'clock in the morning. We are in a sort of classroom, a small one. There are three rows of uh, seats and the players are coming in and sitting down, chatting among themselves. There are two quotes uh, each side of the screen, the massive screen that's in front of them. One by the uh, football coach, American football coach, Vince Lombardi. It says, the only place success comes before work is in the dictionary. The other one is by Eric Cantona. Every experience makes you a man. So the players are coming in and are waiting for the manager. And the manager has just come in. He's got a lesser pen in his hand. He's going to sit on a table on the side of the... Uh, the room in front of the analyst who's got his computer there he's going to analyse uh, the rival today Leicester City and he's about to start talking OK chaps, going to go through Leicester <coughs> So the first couple of points to note here, 442 definitely been a system after the result they got against Manchester City um, other things to know Schmeichel might come back in that will have a consequence in terms of his distribution so we'll show you a couple of tips on that um, and we'll show you they've got a definitive style and a philosophy oh, I'm going to give you the clips here and then the way we're going to combat it outside 
Okay, so these are the key points. So first thing to note, long balls in behind our back four for Vardy and Slomani. They don't really hesitate to get the ball forward, but it will be a different type of balls from the Burnleys to a diagonals. <coughs> and aerial, these will be aerial, but down the sides into the grass. Another main point, the counter-attacking from deep, definite plan and something they work towards. Again, counter-attacking mainly through their front two, so we'll look at that. And lastly, set plays. And we're going to focus on their two long throws. So Hernandez will come in from suspend, uh, Simpson is suspended. And they both have, and they are long throws. And they'll, they won't hesitate to put them in our box. So we'll have a look at that. So first of all, looking at the goalkeepers. Now Eddie's going to play some clips. The first one about Caspers uh, Michael exactly. and how Leicester City build from the back. So important because Bournemouth wants something is rubbed at. Wants to pressure high, and, and they need to know exactly how less the best. This is just one for Schmeichel, and I just think this is worth putting in. So he does this a lot, runs behind his goal, flips it down on the floor, and Vardy and him have this understanding that he'll run, catches teams unawares, and then hold it, sleeping a little bit here. I don't want that, that to happen to us. So as soon as the ball goes out of play, obviously we've got to switch on. Looking at the long balls in behind our back four, variety of ways. So looking at Hooth and Morgan, I don't think they're good on the ball. Then we could press them and, and force errors. But even when they have time... Eddie recognises that uh, the main danger of Leicester City, as well as the set pieces, is their the quick transition, the counter-attacking. So, so he's about to play some uh, video clips of how Leicester attacks. And they're all focused on one game, the Manchester City game. But again, it's quite a simple way of playing. This leads to a goal. First time pass over the top, grass in behind. And if you end up getting in a race, you're going to be in trouble, so our defending is going to be really <coughs> important in terms of our start position. Again, this is on along the same thing, just one ball. What Brighton does this a lot, he's a right foot playing on the left, so he'll tend just to hook the ball over his head. Right I think I've seen the magic of uh, Eddie how he a little bit uh, the attention of the players is total uh, total silence he stops some of the videos to point out that, uh, some of the things that he wants the players to focus on uh, no questions, nobody taking notes but absolute total concentration from the players in what they are hearing well documented will be the way they drop in so they'll give us the ball so our defenders, our midfield players potentially have a lot of the ball tonight. When the ball turns over, that's when they become very dangerous if we don't get our organisation right. So it's the third goal they scored against Manchester City, that's Mahrez and Tivardi. Simple goal, Manchester City didn't quite get their transitions right. So in these positions, you just pause it, guys, just have to just leave it there. These positions are going to be key for us, not so much in terms of this because I want us to attack. This is going to be a key part of the game for us with the ball. But almost then, how we deal with this on a consistent basis. A lot of teams, I think, they've done better with this this year than they did last year. But still, if they get their game right and we don't get this part right, it can be dangerous for us. So I'm going to give you that detail outside in terms of what we're going to do for this part. This video chat has not been longer than about 10 minutes. The players who have already all the training kit and the boots are about to go from here to the training ground. Eddie has told them that he's going to add some detail to what he's explained on the video. The plan is, of course, to do a walkthrough, what he's just told them, and 
make sure that uh, checking that they're listening, number one, and secondly, that they apply that to the game. Such an important part of the day, what's happening here. OK, lastly, combination play out wide. It's going to be big for us because, because of their shape, because it's one of our strengths. Switches of play are going to be really important due to their narrow shape. It doesn't have to be one long ball, it can be worked like this. This is why the left-hand side is important. Maris is loose. Sometimes he will not track back at all and leave his, his right back exposed. We can have real joy down this side. We did that against them last year in both games. So, chaps, just to recap, we're going to go through all this again outside. But it is a game where our tactical discipline, the information I'm going to give you this morning, is going to be absolutely crucial for us. We go into this game blind, it could be difficult for us. We go in with our eyes open in terms of what to expect. I think it could be a fruitful night. Let's go. Players have heard all the instructions, the tactical instructions of the game against Leicester City. By the way, they heard this about a hundred times. They just needed a little bit of a focus on Leicester City in particular. And they're going to go uh, in what they call the walkthrough of those tactics. So we are walking now from the headquarters, from the offices, uh, they're about 20, 25 metres to the training pitch. Uh, as we walk in, it's be the first pitch that they're going to use. The, uh, the team that's going to be in the lineup uh, are going to walk to the further away part of the pitch and on the other side will be uh, 11 players with a bib representing Leicester City of course and uh, Eddie is carrying some nods with him but he's dropping it on the floor grey skies looks like it could rain any second now and Eddie starts giving instructions Jack this is where the key information starts so make sure we retain this. So, we're going to press with our nine. And I want you to show line, Benny. So, they're going to want to go over the top, potentially. If we get good pressure on the ball, hold it there, we'll stand still. Jazz, I want you to lock Maris out. So you've got license to go tight. Now, if Jack's in a good position there, you might not need to go tight. Because you think, well, he ain't going to see the ball at that point. Eddie's giving now instructions on positioning of the players in possession. This is how they're going to attack Leicester City. So he gets close to uh, two or three of the players down the wing. Those are keeping a close eye on what he's saying. The rest are just going through the motions a little bit. This is the worst part for the goalkeeper, who's got absolutely nothing to do here. But of course it's important. The distances between players is absolutely crucial. Uh, they have to get this spot on. And it looks like it started raining a little bit. About 20 minutes since the session started, not much running around, a lot of walking, and now is the assistant manager's time because Jason is going to start giving instructions about set pieces, both attacking and defending. So Eddie takes a back seat. He gives one one instruction now, but again goes goes away from the players and from Jason who is walking through the set piece now. Only one pitch out of the uh, whole training ground is being used. It's the one that uh, the first team is, uh, is doing the rehearsal for the game tonight. Uh, we've seen uh, Jason doing the set pieces. It's drizzling a little bit. Not really cold. Behind me is the stadium and 
it's funny because you can only hear one voice. There's a lot of people. There's some movement. You can see the tractor there preparing perhaps the grass on the stadium, but uh, only hear one voice, Jason. Like a huge space with one voice. Strange feeling. I feel privileged to be here. I'm seeing a manager, assistant manager and the players in action just before a game, really on the day of the game. Uh, I feel like uh, I'm invading their space, but I know that Eddie understands what we're trying to do and uh, and he's very happy that we not only watch, but uh, tell you what we're seeing right now. Okay, from this point, Jazz, your position's brilliant there. You're going to give Jordan a massive problem. Fury being our, your, your usual pocket, yes, play to what you would, play to your fullback, hold it there, Jazz. And that's where, drop off, green back, four, Green midfield. Yeah, you've got passes inside. You've got runs Fury in behind. <laughs> yes, you've got runs to either on nine or ten from deep. It's a loads of scenario. You don't get that part right. This doesn't happen. Go back on the ball quickly. Right, so the walkthrough and the set pieces have been done. This is about half an hour in total. It's the most boring part for the players. You can see it in the faces, and I think the coaches know it, so they don't dedicate too much time to it, but they have to go through it. They have to know what the roles, what their obligations, what the responsibilities are, and now they are walking to the changing rooms. They're all going to go home. Why did you do what you did today? Uh, the, the, the walking through and the set pieces today particularly in the match day um, it's slightly unusual because it's uh, a midweek fixture uh, usually on a Saturday I would a Saturday fixture or a week to week fixture I would have I, I wouldn't have done that in the manner that I did today but due to time constraints etc then I think it's a really good time to get them in on the morning of the game give them their tactical instruction let them go home relax and then uh, just prepare for the game in, in, in the mind rather than anything else because it's all done for them you were going through a lot of detail um, do you feel sometimes you give them too much information or too little or you worry about that um, yeah I think you're always conscious that you don't want to uh, give them new things to do on a match day um, these are things tactical points that I would work towards every day that we the players will, will do anyway it will be second nature to them But it's sometimes just reinforcing the the highlighted points that I make that, that in particular this is what we're going to need to do today out of all the things that we normally do. So I'm not asking them or telling them something that they haven't heard before. And they will probably look at me and think, yeah, I, I know this. But sometimes we've had our best performances on the back of midweek fixtures when I've done this type of work with the players. So from experience, it tells me it does work. But obviously, there's no guarantee to you know, the result tonight. So what time you arrived today then? I was here today at seven o'clock. It's a little bit later today. You had the keys of the place, or there was somebody here already? No, the chef's always here, so he's preparing the food for the morning. Um, a lot of my work was done yesterday, so it was a late finish for me last night, so I could allow myself a little bit more time this morning. So the rest of the day now, you you, you prepare the, the, the presentation, you have the presentation, training session. They all go home now, you stay here? Um, I will probably stay here today, yeah, and mixture of things probably today. I'll look maybe a little bit at re recruitment, I'll look at the next game, I'll look at tonight's game again, I'll maybe have another look at Leicester just to see if there's anything that I've missed. So I'll fill my day with various things. Do, do, does it feel like anything that doesn't have to do with the match today is a disturbance? Yeah, 
yeah, right, uh, cheers for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I look at that actually every day. Anything that's not a direct influence on the team's performance, I will look at as a little bit of an inconvenience. Um, so media-wise, yeah, the media is important for the supporters. It's important for the wider world of football. Is it important for my team? No, not really. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't like to give too many messages to my team through the media. So really, for me, it's uh, it's a slight part of the job that does get in the way. Do you not enjoy the press conferences? Or I wouldn't say I, I dislike them. No, I, that, that that would be wrong. I don't dislike them. I uh, sometimes, if it's a good one, I can enjoy it. But the majority of the time, it's yeah, I prefer to be doing other things. You prepare it. You think about it on the way that what you're going to say, or I tend to have a slight think about the press conference the night before. But the majority of the time, it will be yeah on the way, or I'll speak to the press officer and he'll say these are the subjects today. Sometimes a subject can come up randomly and quite quickly, so you have to maybe do a bit of quick research on it so you don't say something out of turn. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't say I'd give it a great deal of thought. The context of it now is that you come from the Liverpool game. Fantastic, everybody will remember that. Defeat against Burnley, and you didn't have much time to prepare this one. Two days. What did you do in those two days? Um the the Sunday the lads in for a recovery so we've got some good facilities here so they um, they saw the physios and the sports science team they didn't see me um, although I was here I didn't do anything with the team on the Monday we did a, a brief post-match review um, individual clips with the players um, on their performance against Burnley a very very light training session but n- nothing um, again tactically nothing with the ball it was just a really flush their system then they recovered again and then you saw what you saw this morning mm-hmm. and what I, what I saw was references to the fact that second half against Burnley was, was a good performance mm. you wanted to insist make that point clear that we're not that far from what we want to do but we have to focus on that bit yeah I, th- I think the players are quite an intelligent group I think they realise when they've played well when they haven't played well and I think we give them a lot of feedback so I think they'll know what we think um, there were elements of the Burnley game that were very good. There were also elements that weren't so good. So, um, yeah, we know that we haven't probably, even this season, produced the complete performance. What are you feeling about tonight? I'm feeling that uh, we could have some good opportunities to, to play our, our way and our style and give them problems. But I think you're always mindful of the quality players that they have and how they can hurt us as well. So I think a lot will depend on how good we are uh, in our strengths to try and combat this you're going to go now uh, as to the things that you were saying you, you would do everybody has to get to the to the ground well, an hour and a half or so yeah the players an hour and a half before you yeah. so uh, can I see you 10 minutes before the game of course an English coach with DM Balagay on Talk Sports You are listening to Eddie Howe, an English coach, with me, Guillem Balaguer. Securing a third consecutive season in the top flight looks less of an ambition and a more realistic proposition for a team which plays in a town previously better known as a sleepy retirement resort. In this next section, we'll go into the ground, I'll take you down the tunnel and onto the terrace 
as kickoff for Bournemouth v Leicester approaches. Having walked through the tunnels, the uh, bowels of the, uh, of the stadium, and we're going to go to an office that is next to the tunnel where the players will uh, come through any minute now. They are actually warming up. Interestingly enough, the manager doesn't get in, in, involved. Most managers don't get involved with the warming up. So any minute now, Eddie's going to come in. So I'm waiting here. Behind me is this office where we're going to go in. Uh, on my right-hand side is the tunnel. Right at the end, you can see the pitch and the light. And on my left, you've got the two changing room doors, the away team and the home team. A lot of people, a lot of activity coming in and out of it. You're going to hear the players coming in any minute. But I'm waiting for Eddie. This is about... 15 minutes before the start of the game and I'm very curious to see in what mind state he is right now. So, wherever you want. Hey, I will do it. What time is it exactly? It is 25 past. 20 minutes to go? Yeah. At this particular time, you don't exist for them, more or less. Is that right? You For every day, Every minute you had to answer somebody, and now they are in their place now. Yeah, they're they're um they're in their own zone that they need to be, and uh, I was certainly like that as a player where I was actually in my own place on the whole day of the game um, until the final whistle went, and then I came back to, back to earth in a way. I think players, everyone has their own routines, but these guys will be very focused now on what they have to do. They actually uh, verging on very superstitious, sometimes too superstitious. Uh, were you superstitious? Uh, not not to the degree where I'd have it would have an effect on my routine as such. Although I would sort of follow the same routine on match day as such. So I would um, naturally. I think you become a creature of habit. But I wouldn't say it was a superstition for me as such. So if uh, somebody broke that routine somehow, but that unsettled you, or not not to the point where I think I'm going to have a bad game now. Um, I wouldn't like to be talked to, to be honest, on match day. <laughs> yeah, alone, disturbed in terms of. You know what I'm going to do that day. Uh, I would have a clear idea of what I wanted. And just to say, 15 minutes before the game, uh, as I said, you don't get normally people coming to you. Mostly, you you just invisible to them. Do, does it feel like that? Um, yeah, there will be times when a player might need to check something. Maybe a last minute nervous period where they would want an answer to something just to reassure them. But in the main, it's very much. Yeah, you are invisible to them. You aren't. You aren't doing anything that's going to have a constructive effect. I don't believe on the performance. So, uh, I like to be in the dressing room just as the players go out as a reassuring figure to know that I'm there with them. That's just my way of doing it. Are you thinking of changing it? Um, yeah, it's something that I, I will look to evolve. I think as as time goes on. At the moment, I feel a need to be in there. That might change when it, whenever that moment takes me. Because if you weren't there, what would happen? If I wasn't there. I, it's probably more for me than for them. I, I, I would feel that I'm not with the players as they go out and that would then mean... Well, I think because it would be new, they would be wondering where I am. So I think um, yeah, I think it's important that you are consistent with how you work. The game is hard to start and you seem calm. You obviously feel that you've done everything you could do for this game. Yeah, I think that's very much the feeling. It's now a case of you have to see the end result of your work. So the work has gone in, the preparation has happened. Uh, very little I can do now. Um, so... This is the, the acid test. This is when you see whether you've been good or not. And you go out there and you want to be seen standing up in front of the uh, uh, 
the, the bench just to uh, as a reassurance to the players or just to see if everything is set, it's been set up as you wanted um, a mixture of, of all those things if there's tweaks that, that I need to make during the game if there's information I need to get on the pitch I want to be in a position where I can do that very quickly and not via someone else um, I want the players to see me there by their side I want the crowd the supporters to know that I'm I'm with the team as well so it's a, a mixture of emotions and that's where I want to be I don't want to be anywhere else although from a tactical perspective I'd love to see the game from a different view It's all about a day like today isn't it? It's all about a day like today Yeah, This is what you do the job for I mean it's an uncomfortable feeling because so much is at stake and you are judged instantly on the game there's no hiding place from that so it's quite a unique environment um, but it is why you work you want the games you want, you want to be judged in a way and you hope that it's in a positive way, not a negative way. Have you crossed paths with Claudio? Yeah, we've we've met a few times, various meetings last season, uh, the games and the managers' meetings. I've always found him an, an incredible guy, very um, very uh, football orientated, uh, passionate man, and uh, great to see him get success. He seems to be having fun as well. Yeah, that's that's the amazing thing with all the pressure. Even last season, towards the tail end of the of the campaign, he managed to have that smile on his face, and he ha- he managed to act carefree. I know inside he would have been desperate desperate to win it and that's why I think everyone in football was pleased for him. Last bit for now, the moment you come out of that tunnel uh, and you walk into the row of the uh, fans, what is that like? It's not really something I'd focus on. Um, my mind is very much on the first moments of the game, so walking out, shaking hands with the opposing manager, the staff, their rituals you do, the fourth official, their rituals you do without thinking about it. You then have a moment, a nice couple of minutes where you can just reflect, see the team out on the pitch and prepare yourself for the game and, and all the things that go with it. And to be in the zone now, is there anything you've done to to get focus? Or? No, I think it's easy for me. As I say, on, on match days as a player, I was totally focused on my performance. I think on match day as a manager, I'm similar. I sort of slip as it gets nearer to kick off into, into the mo- mood and the mode that I need to be. Whatever happens, can I talk to you after the press conference? For sure. See you later. Thank you. This season, more from Beaky in just a short while. Let's go to the south coast. Let's go to the Vitality. It's Bournemouth against a rejuvenated Leicester City, Ian Danter. Yes, indeed, Sags. Good evening to you. So whilst Leicester saw almost everyone off in that extraordinary march to the title last year, Bournemouth, you know, were one of only three teams to keep the Foxes at bay, home and away, with two draws. Tonight's visitors were clearly back to that swashbuckling 2015-16. This is like the calm before the storm, about 50 minutes before the game. You can hear more noise coming from the boots of the players and people greeting each other than from the stadium itself. You can hear the PA, a little bit of music and words coming through the speakers. But here is like a completely different world. And it's interesting that the only way out from this world to the next one is that little dot of green and light at the end of the tunnel. So the players have left, they've walked into the pitch, you can hear the roar of the fans and I'm still standing here just uh, at the beginning of the tunnel. I had the curiosity to hear what it sounds like to be here when everything is happening on the pitch and what's happening is that there's absolutely nobody here about two, three minutes ago there's a whole world of people, nobody here now. So I'm just going to wait to the kickoff. And once the match starts, I'm going to walk around the pitch to take my seat in the press area. 
the other side, in front of the uh, manager's uh, bench. The game finished about an hour ago and I'm sitting now in the press conference room on my right hand side. There's some tables and uh, there's a dozen of journalists writing things up. There's uh, four or five rows of uh, seats and some of us are sitting there just waiting for the managers to come in. On the left-hand side is where we have the warm cup of tea. Uh, there was pies earlier on. And I think, yeah, I can see at the end somebody's uh, giving away some more pies. So uh, no hunger here for journalists. Everybody seems to be in a good mood. And it tends to happen that an hour after the game, the uh, managers walk in and start telling their version of the game. This, in the mind of every single manager in the world, still part of the game well, Mark was absolutely magnificent tonight and I think he's the uh, one of the shining examples of, of what I look for in a, in a Bournemouth player in the our best moment they score a goal uh, maybe the result is too harsh for us because we deserve the draw it's been a fascinating day and we're reaching the end of it I can see Eddie with a bunch of uh, radio journalists and it is the third or fourth time that he's explaining what's happened in the game and what's coming up next for Bournemouth. Uh, it's been a game full of stories and I want to go through some of them with Eddie, but more than that, I want to know how he feels. Uh, he must be exhausted because during the whole day, he's going to have to, or has had to, put the mask on and make sure that he's got answers to every question from absolutely everybody, that he looks strong, that he looks not tired, 
but if he's happy to do so, I'll let him tell us how exhausted really is now. That went quickly. Went quickly? No, the whole day's oh gone quickly. No, not, not for me, it's been a long, long, long day. Uh, the second half seemed like it was going on forever, um, but delighted the final whistle went with us winning. Yeah, are you tired? Um, I don't feel tired now. I will feel very tired um, in about an hour's time, I think. It's interesting how games throw stories to you. Mark Pugh, well, I just heard the story. He was in the Premier League and mm. the longest Serbian player around. And you were talking about how he'd been in developing games and so on. Uh, you're obviously delighted. Mm. But have you spoken to him at all? Um, yes, I've spoken to him briefly. Um, you don't get a lot of time with the players at the end of the game because the press conferences mm-hmm. take... Um, prominence, um, but I had a quick word with him just to um, praise him for, for his professionalism, his attitude, his commitment. He's probably the player that symbolises this club the most. He's been right n- near enough right through the journey with us all the way through, and um, he never has a day where you think he's down or disappointed. He just keeps going. During the game, I was, uh, I was looking at you, and you stand up a lot of a lot of the time, and but don't give many instructions. Only maybe. Uh, at certain parts of the game, is that a conscious decision? Yeah, it is. I'll only say something if I if I feel um, I, mean, I have specific information. My my opinion when players are playing is let them play. Don't contaminate their heads and the balls rolling to them by shouting stuff that just you can see on the pitch. But they, ultimately, they have to make the decision. So I like to trust them, let them make their own calls. And maybe late in the game, maybe when you want to get some information on board that becomes different but it's very much a case I hated players uh, managers sorry when I was playing telling me my passes especially the right backs well the full backs actually yeah. <laughs> there's the ones to suffer all the time because right. you're close to them uh, the other interesting thing was Jason is standing up a lot uh, mm. next to you as well uh, again that's that's part of what well yeah we, we've sort of built a, a way of working that Jason will speak to the fourth official he will speak to the referee he will be the one that tries to manage the game from our perspective towards the officials because I don't want to waste my time, energy on that side of it because I have too much to, to look at in terms of the, the tactical side. Um, obviously, the first half you're looking at your your half-time team talk. The second half you're looking at substitutions. So you have to get them right. And I think um, I very much just want to focus on the game. Mm-hmm. And at half-time, did you use some video? Did you explain everything, change anything? Um because it was working well the first, the first yeah the, the first half worked really really well um, in terms of how we were expecting the game to go the second half we talked about how the game would change second half and, and we felt they would come out and press us sort of noticed a change in, in how they were playing towards the back end of the first half so we anticipated less time on the ball and, and quicker decisions that we had to make uh, that's probably the, the part of the game where I'm a little bit disappointed with how we reacted because we lost our control um, we didn't execute what we spoke about half time very well, and it turned into then just protecting our lead, which is always a, a dangerous thing to do. So, are you going to clip some of those things you were disappointed with, or would you just reinforce the good stuff in the first half? Uh, an element of both. So, I'll report back to the players individually. I don't, I don't do. It. I don't often do it with the whole team because I want to really be honest with the individuals concerned. So, I'll um, discuss their game the good bits and the bits I think they can improve Did you speak to uh, Ranieri after the game as well? Uh, no I spoke to him briefly before the game I haven't caught him yet as I said we're straight into the press conferences We take over don't we? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah I mean it's, but it's 
it's how it is and you know, obviously the media interest is huge in the Premier League so you, you understand that um, there's people you need to see How long does victory last? It's gone now Is that it? It's gone now yeah it's, um, it's that moment you share with the players in the dressing room um, and I think then when you start the press conferences immediately I'm talking to you but I'm now thinking about Southampton <laughs> no disrespect it's, uh, it's how it is because then you start to you, you come back down and then you start to think right what have I got to do but you going home now yeah and uh, I don't know if you're going to have a bit of wine or something to relax but you're not going to be watching videos or anything um, yeah I might, I might watch a bit of the game I might watch a bit of the game I won't watch a lot because I'll be asleep very quickly so um I might see the key moments in the game that I just need. I, I feel I need to see now, and then um, I'll leave the rest for tomorrow. So you're not one of those that suffer to sleep after the game. Uh, I actually don't have trouble sleeping. I mean, uh, the adrenaline and all those emotions actually just tires my brain. So I know that I will need to sleep. And although I will think about the game, it won't. But as a player, I couldn't sleep. I, I definitely had that feeling where it was I was tossing and turning. But as a manager, it's straight away off, off like a light. One of the fascinating parts of being a manager is that you were in front of 10,000 people and then you are surrounded by 35 people of your staff and players and then you go to a room with 20-odd people and the, the journalist, uh, I don't know, you're going to drive on your own back home? Yes. So then you go from being in front of 10,000 to being on your own. Mm. Uh, how do you leave that, that process? Um, I actually think it's a nice way to uh, then return home when you're on your own and is that drive I mean my drive home won't take me long it'll take me 15 minutes I will um, you just play back the day basically and you'll you're, you're think did I get it right even though we won you still question did I get it right did I pick the team correctly did the way we play was it good and then you'll analyse things in a very quick way to think right we need to do this better and I'm going to focus on that next week so you're just sort of replaying events um, to try and improve the team for the next game it's relentless it has to be that way because Football doesn't stand still. It really doesn't. It moves at such a quick pace. And your modern ways of playing, modern uh, modern uh, improvements in teams can can happen from game to game. So we need to make sure that we're at the cutting edge of it. This is one of the most enjoyable things I've ever done as a journalist. So I want to thank you for that. Ah, oh, that's really nice to hear. Thank you. From the bust of Churchill in his office to the motivational messages plastered across the walls around his HQ, the size of the club and what's being achieved is extraordinary. And this is not just down to Eddie, but it's clearly the fiercely ambitious manager that a project like this needs to keep it moving forward. Throughout this series, we have talked to elite players at the top of the game about how English football has progressed and will progress, from Hector Bellerin to Juan Mata. We've discussed the future of English coaches with Gary Neville, and you just heard someone who has shown the way for English coaches and is not claiming to be better than you are or complaining about perceived lack of opportunities. He's doing it by learning and working. The only way possible for an English coach like Eddie Howe. Thanks for listening. Hasta luego. Eddie Howe, an English coach with Guillaume Balagay on Talk Sports. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 